0: And welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Here at FuturePod, we are always thinking of ways to capture new perspectives and provide mind stimulating content for our listeners. So, we have created an additional format, which we're calling the FuturePod Conversations. Today, we have two of our previous guests returning for a conversation. Dr. John Sweeney from Nahoz University, and Riel Miller, Head of Futures Literacy at UNESCO. Welcome back to FuturePod, John and Riel. Hi.
1: Glad to be back. Yeah, hi.
0: (laughs) So, John posed this question to Riel. Should the field abandon preferred futures? Recently, Richard Slaughter even called into question the efficacy of alternative futures. Distinguishing between anticipation for the future and anticipation for emergence also highlights this tension. How can and must the futures field shift in both theory and practice to deal with this core tension? Anything you want to add, John?
2: Nope, I would love to dive into it.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a it's it's a fantastic uh, topic. And uh, just this morning, I was on the the, the line with uh, colleagues in the UN system, where where we're leading kind of a a change in in competency and capability. And it occurred to me, and and this this might this might not actually have that much historical accuracy in the way things went, but in in my mind, it it, it looks like this is that the debate over people learning how to read. Um, one of the reasons, at least uh, my recollection, is that people say, well, that way they'll be able to read the Bible. Yep. And yes, indeed, yeah, you'll, people will be able to, if, if they can read themselves, they can read the Bible. And not just the priests and the elite will be able to read the Bible. Now, thinking about the future from the point of view of planning is absolutely fundamental. We make bets all the time. We don't get out of bed without making a bet that the floor will still be there. So, you know, that's that's something that is not going to disappear or be reduced in any way, shape, or form. The question becomes, do we learn to use the future in many, many different ways? And let me just add the, the point that's also, I think, relevant to the reading metaphor, which is reading is an expression of of, of something that is universal to most humans, our capacity to speak a language. We speak a language and somebody uh, maybe a few different places all came up with this idea of writing down what was spoken Uh, and that became writing and reading and recording and being able to communicate in that way. And then we of course read and write about many, many different things with many, many different purposes. It's a capability. It's not an end in itself. I think it's exactly the same with anticipatory systems. Anticipatory systems are as innate to humans as speaking. It's something that we do uh, when we start crying for food, when we're children, a baby, uh, it's something we do when we cross the street. And it's also something universal to all living things because trees and and frogs and all sorts of uh, living creatures also have anticipatory systems incorporated in them. So from that foundation, that anticipation is something so universal, why can't we imagine something equally kind of capacity building around anticipation as we can around language? Language, we we think that reading and writing is a way to enhance the capability that we have to speak, uh, and I think it does. And in the same way, uh, being able to understand anticipatory systems and futures literacy does as well. In which case, strategic foresight, planning, anticipation for the future with the future as the teleological goal, normative, utopian, ideological futures are obviously crucial ways of using anticipation. But... They are only one way of using anticipation. And there are other ways, and there are other ways that also open up windows to perception and to acting that provide us with better access, in my view, to a universe that consists not just of risk but also uncertainty. The field knows perfectly well that there's a fundamental difference between risk that is calculable on the basis of models and uncertainty, which is surprises. And surprises are surprises. You cannot be prescient for surprises. That's the creativity. That's the, the, the amazing aspect, of the, the beauty, the mystery of our universe. Uh, and being able to encompass both planning, anticipation for the future, and emergence of and novelty anticipation for emergence is something that that you wouldn't you wouldn't say and some people might have said you should only learn to read so you can read the bible i don't think so sorry to to get carried away
2: (laughs) oh no carried away is good if i can jump in i i think what really drew me to this this question and wanting to engage riel is a was a few things. So feeling a bit triangulated. One was there was a Peter had mentioned uh, by Richard Slaughter kind of saying, look, we to think about alternative futures now is is, is meaningless because we're we're staring down the barrel of, of this climate changed future. And, and that is something that we need to confront in a really meaningful way. And then there was a an exchange, uh, an ongoing exchange on the World Future Studies Federation listserv around what is the question of the 21st century? And it sort of devolved into a bit of a, you know, technical, ontological, epistemological kind of Framing and and I guess what I realize is this this critical tension between you know anticipatory systems and processes focused on you know the future versus emergence and I, I love I love the distinction um, is very much rooted within I think the 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 terrain if you will of the field but I also feel like there's a there's a political question there um, it, and it and it for me it is around agency and around hope and how do we deal with that tension of wanting to continuously facilitate that. But also, uh, and I think there is a real need to be honest, uh, and, and maybe it is an honesty that happens in a disciplinary sense and with how we engage with with the future and futures, uh, which is to say that uh, we need not fall back into this kind of you know risk management, you know stri- strategic foresight only mindset, but to o- to be open to that radical possibility space. And and I think in the context of Rails work, to hold that possibility space open. Um, and so I think. That was something that I had so, had seen play out in certain conversations, but of course now, given the the crisis that we're all dealing with in different ways, it does seem incumbent upon us to to hold that tension, um, to articulate that tension further, and to really maybe even play with it, if you will, in the sense of an infinite game that it that it keeps going and it remains open.
1: Yeah, I'm, John and Peter, I mean, you 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 both know how crucial it is to be able to to make this pluralism, if it will, or this multidimensionality meaningful and accessible. But you know, we also understand that these are things that are related to power and they're related to habit and they're related to expectations in the way we construct our sense of security, our sense of hope, our motivations. And I think quite difficult to let go of something that's been successful or seemed successful. Industrial society seems wildly successful from many perspectives. Uh, and all of the the Habits and institutions and the systems that get reproduced through language and, and relationships and, the, and the, the ongoing creation and renewal of relationships in, in power structures and systems and in, in habits. All of that gives us, gives us a sense of security. But it's also why the, I've got two metaphors in my mind, two images in my mind. And one is the, the paradigmatic one related to flat earth, round earth. And the other is the walking on two legs or seeing with two eyes issue, and and I think John, the, the issues that you raise for me are entirely about transitional uh, issues that 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 we need to address in terms of that paradigmatic shift and in terms of that practical process of of enabling the you know stereo vision as it were. So on the paradigm side, it's so hard. Uh, to change our monsters, to change our fears, uh, to to go beyond uh, the, the sense of security that was manifest, let's say, in the post-war period. Moonshots and Manhattan Projects and D-Day and those mass production and consumption and all the things that, that seemed to be so reassuring and providing us with a regime that looked like it would uh, last forever. But of course, when we look at climate change or when we look at the brittleness the fragility that's baked in to the monoculture globalization that the pandemic uh, just simply uses as a as an you know an open way to spread around the world uh, we see that it wasn't through you know our planning we didn't do this intentionally but we actually day in day out perceived the world in such a way what I would call arrogantly from an engineering perspective that we didn't design in we didn't take into account we didn't consider the need for you know the the kind of uh watertight enclosures that let's say would have helped the titanic uh not sink it's another story of arrogance the sinking of the titanic i mean from from the point of view of making this paradigm shift or the transition Uh, which would allow us to walk on two legs, I think we have to be very, again, humble about it because it's so difficult. It's hard to give up our monsters and invent new ones. It's hard to give up our hopes and invent new ones. And so the fact that in the field uh, or amongst the decision-makers or those in power, it's, it's hard to embrace the new... Um, yeah, absolutely. And that means that the, the approach needs to be an approach which is as inclusive and appreciative as possible, but not uh, compromising on what turns out to be some significant incompatibilities. Imagining the future without a, a kind of normative uh, overlay that says this is the preferred future, go for it, backcast it, plan it, and make it happen. You can't conjure that kind of future when you're on peyote. <laughs> uh, but peyote may give you the opportunity in indigenous cultures to see the world in such a different way that you appreciate new things about it. And it, you know, it's not that that one is good or bad or whatever. It's not what I'm trying to say. It's that we need to be able to entertain both and our current culture and our current practices make that very hard. And, and to, to be completely, you know, take my personal position on it it's going to take generations. I'm going to be long dead uh, by the time the vestiges of the desire to plan and the arrogance that I inherited uh, from so many sources, including the organizations that I've always worked for. When I'm I'm long dead, the vestiges of that will have finally faded. But my hope is simply to be the best compost possible, meaning that, that my legacy is not one of trying to sustain yesterday's arrogance or yesterday's way of doing things and to not proclaim that my way of doing things should be imposed on the future, but simply saying the way I've done things is the best I can uh, learn from it or not.
2: Yeah, I really I, I really like that. Well, the variety of framings there. I, I guess I'm wondering, it it seems to me that there's as many complications, you know, envisioning those futures on peyote as with envisioning them with, a, let's say, a group of flat earthers. And and I, I do think that maybe part of the issue, and I, I think what you've articulated, is this, this monoculture fascination or even pathology with with confusing the, the the process for the product and needing to put you know a bow and a box around this kind of uh, you know strategic sort of um, you know fascination. Um, and again, I, I say this to someone now who's an editor of a journal of strategic foresight, right? Uh, but maybe the the, the vestiges of of the framings, uh, are, have really come home to roost. And, and so the necessity is to maybe take that hard turn. I mean, I, I, I see what's happened recently in, in philosophy and political theory with, you know, the non-human turn and the effective turn. And there really have, has been a group who've said, no, wait a second. Like we are not going to talk about, you know, the, the, this, this rational choice theory is, is absurd. We're not going to talk about the individual. We're going to talk about the actant. And and when you mentioned even, uh, you know, the monsters and eating new monsters, I, was thinking of, of you know Bruno Latour's point around you know, the challenge with Frankenstein wasn't his creation or him as a being or as a becoming, but the fact that he wasn't loved. So we, we haven't been able to love our monsters. We haven't been able to, to bring them in and, and, and to be close to them in a way that, that we we realize the, the, the naturalness of the monstrosity and how we find a way to live within that emergent context. So I, I suppose for me, it is it does become a question of if we want to be good compost, as you say, if we want to be good ancestors, Need we be more militant with regards to this? I mean, I know you're someone who works, you know, inside and out and through these kinds of organizations, right? And, and having also worked, you know, and, and working with these organizations myself, you find yourself sort of, you know, stretched and, and, and sort of split, right? And having to, you know, play both sides, if you will. So how, how militant do you feel that we have to be within the context of trying to, you know, be that better compost, if you will?
1: Yeah, gr- gr- yeah, absolutely, John. I mean, it's, it's a struggle, and and I don't think that there's a, a, you know, a one size fits all on this one because different organizations, different contexts, as both you and I know, and we've designed, uh, and collaborated, and worked together, and facilitated together in different circumstances. That the way to play it, it, it differs in, in in each one. But I, I think that the from the point of view of being on, you know, I'm so I'm on the board of the World Future Studies Federation, and formerly on the Association of Professional Futurists, and all the rest. And I think from the Point of view of the profession, I think defense, dropping the defensiveness would be good and not feeling that it's a, a, a loss of uh, status uh, or dominance uh, to realize that foresight, strategic foresight, normative images of the future, uh, the scenarios we generate particular types of anticipatory systems and processes and that scenarios are really symptoms and they're mostly throwaway symptoms uh, of of current you know of, of a particular circumstance and a particular set of anticipatory uh, goals reasons for thinking about the future and methods for thinking about the future because I think that would allow us to to establish the field and I guess in some ways I have a very ambitious but on the other hand kind of more modest than uh, than world changing. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, both for practitioners, but also for the field as a whole, meaning humanity's understanding of anticipatory systems and processes, from the peyote to the you know uh, uh, AI uh, uh, projection, that those all of those different epistemic uh, tools that we have, but also the, the variety of purposes that then allow us to Put tool and task together. Um, that that all of that should be embraced, uh, and that by embracing all of that, we could develop a lot of good research programs. Those research programs would support practice and community engagement. I mean, I'm a strong believer in the in the in the, the, the classical uh, three-part purpose for uh, institutions, which create knowledge, which is to in- innovate and do research, to teach and spread learning, but also to engage with the community. And so if we can imagine, uh, and this is what the UNESCO chairs are really about, at least in, in, in I think, in, in the aspirational side, is, is to say we create an, a really vibrant and living, not static and, you know, uh, kind of trying to dominate uh, approach but one that says future studies is about anticipatory systems and processes we need a huge range of disciplines uh, to be able to study that to be able to learn and teach about it and to be able to engage the communities so that we can develop futures literacy as as a universal capability that everybody should have access to because and this comes to the to something that's uh, beginning to resonate more and more which is why should we leave it up to the folks, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick and uh, uh, Blade Runner uh, or uh, The Economist or The New York Times or whomever uh, has produced an image of the future um, to generate people's images of the future? It's a democratization issue uh, par excellence in the same way that reading and writing was. It's a capability every human should have.
0: And I just jump in with a point here because I'm curious because, I mean, what I'm hearing is, again – using my language, is, is the notion of the paradox of what we're talking about. There's both, and, and I'm talking more about the personal rather than our field or at, or our professional vocation. But people, a sense of agency and purpose about me creating a future I prefer and the paradox of that when I'm moving into a future that possibly through my preferences is becoming less and less knowable puts me in this kind of paradox of identity, the paradox of my agency. It's not that I don't have it, I don't have great agency, I'm just not sure. And I'm wondering how what, you know, what you're what you're calling for, Real, and I don't disagree with it, is 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 also going to put tremendous challenge on people and the way people are if you like, see themselves and see their purpose in life. Because for many of our people, they have to make a living in organizations that want the future to be knowable and certain and planable. And to some extent they have to satisfy that that group of people. At the same time, they probably fully understand that the future is moving rapidly into ways they can't imagine. So how do we allow that to also be part of the conversation?
1: Peter, I'm 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 I mean I you know, there's no there, no, there are no simple answers, as I said, you know, to, in the discussion with John and I and our experience and your experience too, is, is that we adapt to context and the imperatives of the context. And they're not, they're not all the same. But, you know, as I was growing up, so I was living in Washington, D.C., Canadian originally, but living in Washington, D.C. in, in the late 60s, um, the, you know, the slogans were things like the personal is political. And if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. But, the flip side of that for me was that uh, vanguardist thinking um, that attempted to impose uh, a particular vision of the future on people, uh, whether that was a uh, fascist vanguardism or, or communist vanguardism or whatever it happened to be, didn't seem to be a particularly promising way to, to, to make sense of all that. Um, and so that left us exactly, Peter, in, in this kind of in-between situation where you want to be moral and and responsible. You want to be an agent, uh, at the same time as you don't want to determine. And I mean, maybe, maybe this, this sounds too, uh, kind of simple or naive or whatever, but I mean, children (laughs) grow up. And one of the things that I think we know about parenting, not that we know how to do it, is that you want to find that right balance, which is not the same at every age of a child in terms of constraint and, 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 and openness. Here, here, when we think of ourselves as a collective species, I don't think we can have a collective brain, and I don't think we can have a universal and common mindset. Um, we're not a hive mind, uh, and I don't see us as having a, you know, a world a governance which then you know directs and plans uh, the, the, the world system. I think we need to, to appeal to uh, evolutionary biomimicry, even the, the quantum, in the sense of the discoverability and the relational and and the and the mystery to a certain extent, in order to to live in ways which are just consistent with that openness. But that means we don't we can we have to profound we have to give up something that we've been profoundly attached to, which is the idea that we should or could know the future uh, from the point of view of better. And this really causes, you know, a a really difficult kind of uh, paradigmatic shock, which is if you can't say you're making the future better, you know, you're kind of abandoning some of this enlightenment baggage. Um, people say, well, what's the point of thinking about the future? And that's one of the really big struggles to go back to the you know, point that, the issues that John was raising that, that in the end, people, people often look at me uh, when I, when I say kind of the things that I do and they say, well, why would you even bother? Because we need to change the world so we won't have climate change. And I mean, by the way, it's one of the, I had a discussion with Richard Slaughter just yesterday. Um, and it was one of the debates he and I had over the years, uh, because I've, I think it, we have to be very, very cautious. Uh, I'm glad we're giving up alternative futures from the point of view of normative societal or civilizational projects. I think that it's 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 that's a form of lunacy um, because it, it puts us at odds with our universe uh, and discovering ways to make ourselves less, ca- you know, caught in the in the in the in the in the pain of cognitive dissonance. Between what we think and what the what we see happening in the world around us is actually important for health, uh, not to mention legacy and being good compost.
2: Yeah, I think so. From my perspective, I, I, I guess circling back to this point around you know, let's 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 take take the moment right. You've got lots of organizations confronting the uh, radical uncertainty of of you know a variety of crises, and you're precisely seeking out some. You know, assistance, right? Some some mitigation. So you you post a job call for a futurist, or you you know post a job call for some kind of consultation, and then you know you sit down at the table, and in that first meeting, it's precisely this conversation, not around. Well, yeah, this is not going to ensure that that you're going to you know be able to make your strategy uh you know more robust, or that you're going to be able to find the way to survive and thrive. But uh, precisely back to I think the the point is to to be able to embrace that paradox and to be able to own that complexity and to be able to fundamentally um, see the futility of, of this sort of, you know, Newtonian approach to uh, the world as a space, uh, even though, you know, for a majority of what we do, Newtonian physics has a lot of great payoff, right? But being to, uh, being to be open to the, the reality and, and the truth of it, I, I suppose from my perspective, it is around having the the wherewithal within the context of of the field to be able to like I said to to call into question the spaces where that is the discourse and then to be able to to try to reposition in a way where it is it's done critically and creatively and I suppose you know and and again given my my rather short time in the field like it 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 has sort of been ebb and flow um, the waves of people wanting to do this uh, but I think what I what I really like about uh, the movement that Riel has built and is continuing to build is that it it is is aiming to be robust and, and research driven. And but I think that we're also living in a unique moment where we're seeing an explosion within the context of you know indigenous uh, decolonial futurisms and Afrofuturism and and people who you know come from a design perspective and and have no connection to the field, if you will, or the history of future studies and. And that has brought in a lot of really rich, fresh perspectives. Um, but it also, I, I guess, stands to create a bit of a, a you know, a bit of a gap, uh, potentially a bit of a, you know, division, if you will. So I guess I'm, I'm still wondering, like, how do we find, how do we find a way to, to keep on in a way that's meaningful and, and to kind of play both sides and to, to own that paradox as, as practitioners?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of rich the things to kind of riff off of the product that's being sold sometimes which is perfectly normal and natural you know here, here's a problem here's a solution can be narrow and effective for the narrow context but from the point of view of the profession in the field i don't think it hurts uh to say as part of doing a specific scenario exercise a specific normative uh activity pay attention to the fact that you're also developing a more general capability i mean uh, it's a bit risky to use the the, the Bible and reading, but I mean, people will learn to read the Bible and they'll learn to read about general things. And they'll be able to use that skill to, to read plenty of and write about plenty of other topics. I think putting more emphasis on that, which would, in my view, also include being able to access the other epistemic logics, the other narrative structures, the design, the indigenous... Would be hugely beneficial for the field and for the how could I put it the 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 aspirations the the advocacy um the the sense of of agency and responsibility uh, of people doing work in the future's field so I think opening ourselves up to this confidence uh, what I've often called the big tent approach, but really has very i think rigorous distinctions to be made across the different anticipatory systems and processes, the different narrative frames, the different analytical frames that we use in order to imagine uh, for different reasons and in different ways, is something that we will feel natural over time. But also, and so, John, just to, 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 you know, empathize a lot with the, with the, the struggle that this is in, in a practical sense with, with people who are saying, what do I do now that COVID's hit and I can't, I, I don't seem credible anymore because I didn't have enough masks in my back closet, um, you know, is to say it's normal. This is, we're just beginning to develop widespread reading and writing. You know, somebody put out a newspaper at the time when most people couldn't read and write. They'd say, well, why did I create so many copies of this paper when people can't read and write? Well, they would have, you know, that's it. You need from my point of view, as in any transitional period. And I would emphasize the fact that a transition does not necessarily end at any particular end point. So transition to what? I don't know. But if we're in a transition, which implies that there's some disintegration or less credibility or less liveliness, to some old systems, old ways of doing things, they feel inadequate, they bump up against limits and new systems through experimentation, not necessarily through intention or planning are popping up and being tested and being created. Of course, we're, we're, we're at the early phase and here the cycles don't disappear. There's a growth cycle, there's a creative destruction cycle, et cetera. And, from my point of view in the current context where we're very transitional uh, it's normal to have this confusion and normal to have also some defensiveness and some sense of things being lost things being threatened because other things are growing up and creating a little bit of shade where you you know once upon a time it was just this and so I mean all of this feels relatively normal and natural to me even if there are days when I go oh my god you know uh, can can't we get to down the road a little bit and 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 make this uh, clearer and easier but uh you know that's that's not reality reality's never that way
0: what I'm hearing is that is for you giving a preference for the broadening and and allowing in the messiness and creativeness of and freedom before we start to codify and If you like, create the next form of this because it's almost in in the kind of radical letting go that we're going to find the beginnings of the new language. The thing I'm curious about, not that I'm holding on to the notion of preferred futures, but I'm wondering about: does something like holding an ethic and and taking ethics forward into the future? I don't imagine it's always bad or always good, but but are there a sense that ethical considerations have to you know, have to also be loosened off in order to to be let emerge, or no? Ethics are things that are fundamental that that should go forward into the future. I mean, it's kind of a messy question. I apologise yeah. for asking it badly.
1: No, no, no. It strikes me. I, I, sorry, Peter. You you you, uh, you you really strike a chord, and I hadn't thought of it this way. But I mean. In some senses, so the way I hear it is, is, you know, is this complete relativism, and not at all. I mean, I'm I'm actually saying, you know, the the normative future that that I think is being put forward here is one that's not colonized, right. and that's and, and the gift is to say, we want to be solid compost, good fertilizer. Our legacy uh, should be one of uh, harmony, health, uh, and and respect and and tolerance. So it's full of values and ethics. Um, but what they do with it is not my business. In other words, I, I, want my, you know, I want my children to be strong and capable and as, and, and, and as able as possible, but I don't want to tell them what to do or how to do it or the way they should live. That's their responsibility. That's what I respect in them. They have, that's their freedom. And I think that, that, uh, when I die, the fact that I liberate them from, from, from my being alive is also a good thing. Because it opens up ways for them to be that were impossible when I was there um, and so for me that this is this is a relationship to the normative future which is which is very powerful and strong as a living ethic but is very weak if if non-existent from the point of view of predetermining a specific outcome or way of being
2: yeah no absolutely and I this you know what's really resonating for me is something that had had drawn me to uh, the, the work with Zia and and the folks on on the post normal and and in that initial paper he uh, Zia had written about uh, virtues and he talked about humility and modesty and you know Peter your point around how do we how do we have an ethics uh, and I think that that ethics is is really a, a comportment right that that is you know values driven and something that can be fundamental and I and what I really appreciate about this exchange is you know the fundamental value I think that um you know Riella said is is not this do no harm because that in and of itself is sort of this um this tolerance type approach but the, the more radical positionality of of trying to find ways to 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 keep the infinite game going, to keep it open such that it's a realization that, you know, there there is this cause and effect relationality, but that that we are inter inter interdependent beings who fundamentally you know do, you know want to be good, good ancestors or, or good compost if you will and and how do we find a way towards that that allows that possibility space to to continuously remain open and i think I think that you know we are we are if anything uh you know or we, we have been given this you know this moment where uh where, you know where the veils have really dropped and and so we we're able to you know confront this i I guess you know my my, my, my question or my concern still centers on the kind of you know the, the aptitude. Do we you know do we find ourselves you know sort of the the, the voice in in the wilderness right Cry, crying wildly aloud or or do we feel like that you know there is there there is a momentum and, and and I I see it both ways and of course you know it changes almost on a daily basis right relative to the the conversation and the exchange. But I think uh, I think continuing to hold that. That space, you know. I, I also think, at a, at a at a deeply personal level, it's you know all of the all of the people who I who I know and respect and have had a chance to you know do good work with really own this. And so it's part of their identity. Uh, and I, I think that it 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 does ask a lot of the practitioner uh, of the researcher to really own this. And so you're you're living that paradox, right? You're you're sort of you know on a daily basis realizing that you know, the, the navigating the uncertainty is something that happens at a variety of levels, which, you know, creates, um, you know, a whole lot of, of different, you know, complexities. So I think that it does ask a lot of someone to be, a you know, that kind, to have those kinds of ethics and to be a practitioner, especially in this kind of a moment. Um, you know, when you when you see the, the flat earthers or the, you know, the 5G tower burning, or uh, even the politics of the U.S., right? It, it it can feel a bit disparaging, like oh, you know, what? What? Who are we trying to be good compost for? You know, as we barrel towards not just the climate change future, but the the idi- idiocracy realized scenario. Um, you know, you, you you still want to hold that space, and I I think uh, as a practitioner and researcher, I I feel that I feel that tension, uh, but also feel the necessity to to have you know conversations like this, which which really affirm the necessity of of that uh, of that those virtues.
1: Can, can I can I echo? Um... The point uh, that, John, you've, you've raised here, which is that it, it can be pretty painful. I mean, I don't want to make it uh, Galileo and, and, and Inquisition and uh, burning at the stake kind of stuff. But the toxicity of the current dominant paradigms and, and ways of being and worlds uh, that people imagine is in some senses more evident than ever, because that's a cyclical and conjunctural type phenomenon. It gets, it's, it's more the the clouds part and you see things. But, but at the same time, calling attention to that, uh, and disrupting the certainties, uh, that, that inform the reproduction of that toxicity, uh, can be dangerous business and difficult business and feel urgent and of desperate importance. Um, and so managing all of those different imperatives is pretty hard. But it's also, uh, just to put the upside on it, I mean, it's also fabulously exciting. I mean, I do feel that, that, and I mean, it was one of the things that made this, this pandemic crisis a bit crazy, which is that what an unbelievable opportunity to point out to people that their image of the future shapes what they see in the present. The teleworking thing was just, I mean, for those of us who've been talking about various scenarios in telepresence for years, I mean, decades, uh, to see it all of a sudden, the, the attitudinal change alter the relationship to the tools and, of course, confirm the proposition that it's not the tools, it's the people was fantastic and, and and like was, oh, wow, the door opened. Let me go through it. And so, you know, it gets it gets kind of frantic and 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 exuberant, uh, but at the same time exhausting. And, and and that's that's really the you know i think you're right we're we're living it and uh it's uh it's wonderful to have community to to be able to share it with and uh, peter this is uh this community that you've created is uh, is one that i appreciate a great deal
0: thanks Rael. uh john do you want to close anything because i think we've we've reached a kind of natural point it seems to me in the conversation what do you say
2: yeah i think we're compost i i really appreciate the engagement and the exchange and uh i think that it's it's spaces like this that uh that are really ne- necessary if, if we're going to to find ways to to not colonize the future further and to to allow that possible possibility space to be held. So just really thankful to uh, to both you Peter and Riel and uh the team at Future Pod for for setting this up. So thanks.
0: Sort of my last point just before we do close the podcast is really in the notion that, that you know and I I don't and I appreciate both you coming on and this isn't this isn't the last word. It's only simply the first conversation. Um, is there anything you want to add for the listeners who might want to possibly continue the conversation or take it down different paths about how they might put their hand up to participate or or be willing to sort of step into the this very emergent space?
1: Just very briefly from, from my end, because there's there's lots, and you know that's one of the the beauties of. of podcasts and zooms and googling and all that but I think that that it would be terrific to just have much more um, uh, kind of in confidence in experimentation Uh, and I think that that despite the anxiety that's that's uh, that's created by what I was calling the transitional uh, period when when the events are indicative of decay and decline but also of birth people need the confidence to experiment and and to share those experiments so sharing experimenting and sharing the what you've discovered um i think is really crucial and and obviously the unesco chairs and the the upcoming summit uh on uh futures literacy are opportunities for people to share
2: yeah no i I would echo that sense of confidence in in the engagements and conversations we have both you know internally um you know amongst practitioners and researchers, but also you know outwardly. and I think you know now is a really interesting and also a challenging time where you know um, people are maybe grasping for that certainty and 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 wanting things that are that are you know let's be honest unreasonable. so you know having the confidence to say to a client, you know yeah you know, we're not going to do scenarios here. Or, or this this is not going to work with you. But now we need to be, you know, either radically participatory or, or fully experimental or really open ourselves up to the uncertainty and complexity of this moment. And to be able to own that, I think, is is, is quite necessary. And I think that, you know, the spaces that uh, Riel and UNESCO have carved out have been really fantastic for that. And, and doing that within organizations who have a clear agenda and, and I think it, it, it can be done and it is about, you know, owning that. So, yeah, I would just say that the confidence piece is quite critical and I would, I would love to see and hear more practitioners talking about those aspects of the work. And, and I think that's, a, again, a great space to, to have these
0: conversations. Okay. On behalf of the community, thanks to you for taking some time out to have a conversation with yourselves and all of us. Thanks very much.
1: Real pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, John.
2: Thanks so much.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.